Amen. Now, welcome to uh, Memorial. Welcome back. Uh, oh, wait, I was the one that went somewhere last week, wasn't I? Um, I'm glad that you're here. You're in a place of peace. You're in a place of hope, a place of healing. And, uh, you know, God bless you for getting out and coming this morning. Uh, it's our joy to be with you today, but it's also our joy to honor our King. And, uh, you know, King Jesus has done it all for us, and that's why we worship Him. That's why He is worthy of our praise. And I want you to know that I love Jesus more than anything in this life. I, li I love my wife a whole lot, and I'm going to talk about that a little bit later. But I love Jesus more. Because he died for me. He's my Savior. He's my Lord. He's my King. You know, my prayer is today that you are abiding in Christ this morning. That you are loving him with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, with all your strength. That you are loving others. You know, he is our source. He's the difference maker in every situation in our life, in every relationship. Jesus Christ is the difference maker. See, if you're married, I hope that you are loving your spouse well. If you have children, I hope that uh, may they experience from you the unconditional love that we have received from our Father in heaven who gives it in abundance. You know, this morning before we wrap up our study in, in Ruth and uh, look at our scripture text in Ruth 4, I just want to lead us in a word of prayer and I just ask if you would bow with me and pray with me as I lead us in prayer. Loving Father, I thank you for this time. I thank you for what you're going to do in this place. I thank you for the truth of your word. Father, how your word never changes. But Father, how you are constant in our lives yesterday, today, and tomorrow. Father, what a beautiful thing it is to have a relationship with you, that we could walk with you, that, that we are never, ever alone. But Father, that you are with us. I pray, Holy Spirit, that even now that you would just quicken our hearts, uh, that you would examine it, that you would uh, just hold it up and, and look at it and, and see if there are areas in our lives where maybe we're not consistent or things that are going on that we need your help in. So, Father, I pray that you would just do what you want to do in each one of our lives this morning. Father, I pray that your word, your truth, uh, would impact us. Father, we love you and we praise you and we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. You know, I'm sure that many of you have experienced uh, family-style dining, you know, where they just set big bowls of food on the table in front of you, and you can dish it up and, and take whatever you want. Uh, some of you are probably saying, well, where's that at right now, Ridge? Um, we're ready. Um, but the idea is, uh, you know, uh, I kind of feel that way about today's message, that uh, I'm going to just set some, some of these topics out there on the table, and, and you can dig in and eat as much of it as you want. Um, because I know there's a lot more to it than what I can share in the, the time that I'm allotted to, to share. Um, but our, our first course is a large bowl that is laden with what I want to call integrity. Okay, we're going to talk about integrity. We're going to talk about marriage this morning. Um, you just picked the right week to be here. Um, but integrity is not just a word that's found in the dictionary. It's, it's not just a quality that you look for in leadership. 
uh, in, in others. Um, integrity is the incarnation of God's character in a human being in the flesh. So basically what I'm saying is uh, integrity is when you see God's character in someone else. When you see God's character in someone else, you know, it, Scripture tells us that the Word became flesh, which is it's talking about Jesus. The Word became flesh and dwelt among us. When we see integrity, it is within someone else's life. It is in the flesh when we see the integrity. It's something that we can see in someone else. And that's what I'm saying. To understand the meaning, it means that uh, it, it, to see it practiced in another person's life. And I think this is huge because when we talk about integrity, we talk about people that, we, that have integrity and we know uh, this person has integrity. Or, or, and, and you know what? It's that kind of person that we trust. It's that kind of person where their, their life and their, what they say and what they do match up. And, and, and we recognize, hey, that's in a person. That is, that is who they are. And so we desire that. Um, you know, we go back in Ruth, and you remember uh, the story. I'm not going to recap the whole story. But you remember how um, uh, Naomi and her husband and, and two boys moved off to Moab from, from Judah. And uh, they, they, the, the two boys uh, got married, and, and then uh, Elimelech, the, the, the father, died, and then the two sons died. And so you had these three ladies that were widows, all three of them, in a foreign land. And... Uh, two of them were from Moab, but then they split up, and, and Ruth made a, a, a tremendous commitment uh, to Naomi, and she said, where you go, I will go, uh, your people will be my people, your God will be my God, and, and we see that many times today in um, wedding ceremonies, people quote that and use that as a, a method of, of you know, um, really communicating commitment, Okay, and, and so um, the, then the two ladies came back, Ruth and Naomi, and they came back to uh, Judah, to Bethlehem, and it happened to be the barley harvest season. And so uh, Ruth went out to glean in a field, and it just so happened that it was the field of a close relative, uh, Boaz. She didn't know it at the time, but God was orchestrating, uh, you know, uh, all of the, 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 the circumstances for his purposes uh, to, to be accomplished. And so what happens is, is, is then, um, you know, she gleans in his field. He says, don't go to anybody else's field. Come to my field and glean. And um, so she does that. And before long, her mother-in-law, uh, Naomi, tells her, go wash yourself and go down to the threshing floor where Boaz is and ask him if he would be uh, your uh, close kinsman redeemer. And so she does that. And um, he says, you know, he wakes up and he's, she's there and she's like, oh man, um, would you do this? And he said, yes, I'll do it. I'll handle it tomorrow. But there is somebody that's closer than I am. And so he has first right of refusal. He can either redeem Naomi's land or he doesn't have to. But if he says no, then I will. And so this, this, this becomes huge because what we see is we're going to see that, that Boaz represents a person of integrity. But let, let's look at this in um, chapter 4, verse 1. We're going to camp out in Ruth chapter 4. If you have your scripture and would open it up, um, we're going to be there for a little bit this morning. It says, Now Boaz went up to the gate, and he sat down there, and behold, the close relative of whom Boaz spoke was passing by. So he said, Turn aside, friends, sit down here. And he turned aside and sat down. He took ten men of the elders of the city and said, Sit down here. So they sat down. 
Then he said to the closest relative, Naomi, who has come back from the land of Moab, has to sell uh, the piece of land which belonged to our brother Elimelech. So I thought to inform you, saying, buy it before those who are sitting here and before the elders of my people. If you will redeem it, redeem it. But if not, tell me that I may know, for there is no one but you to redeem it, and I am after you. And he said, I will redeem it. Then Boaz said, on the day you buy the field from the hand of Naomi, you must also acquire Ruth the Moabitess, the widow of the deceased, in order to raise up the name of the deceased on his inheritance. The closest relative said, I cannot redeem it for myself because I would jeopardize my own inheritance. Redeem it for yourself. You may have my right of redemption, for I cannot redeem it. So I I think this is huge because we see Boaz represents this person of integrity. And remember that Boaz was a God-saturated man, okay? He He was somebody who walked with God. He was somebody who was in touch with God. He was somebody who was willing to do what God asked him to do. He was a man of integrity in the ordinary events of life. You know, sometimes we think we'll, we'll, we'll be a person of integrity in those big things, but it's in the little minutia that happens every single day. It's in the ordinary events that happen throughout life that we have to be that person of integrity. You know, to see integrity uh, in practice, look at the way he claimed the role of kinsman redeemer in this book, in Ruth. Because integrity can be seen in truthfulness. Integrity can be seen in honesty. And you remember when Ruth visited the threshing floor, Boaz promised her that he would attend to the matter of the kinsman redeemer that same day. He said, I will take care of this today. And he fulfilled his promise. He he went to the gate. he, he, He planned at the gate of the city to be the kinsman redeemer. He called the closer one in. See, the rules were, the, the law of the day uh, was that the closest relative had first right to, to redeem the property, to redeem, uh, for, you know, to be that kinsman redeemer. And so legally, this other close relative had that right. And so Boaz goes to him and he says, hey, I know that you're the closest relative and you have the right to redeem. But if you do, this goes along with it. You got to marry Ruth. And he said, I can't do that. It'll jeopardize my own inheritance. And he said, but go ahead. If you want to redeem, you redeem. But he went about it the right way. He was honest with him there. But listen, when we promise a person something, we need to fulfill that promise. When we tell somebody we're going to do something, then we need to do it. We need to show up. We need to do it. See, no one who has integrity will say one thing and then do another. It's the character of God. (laughs) The truthfulness of God, the, the, the honesty of God within us that allows us, if we make a commitment, to keep that commitment. 
And I think this is huge because Boaz told her, he said, I will take care of this matter today. And what did he do? He went, he called, uh, the, 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 saw the, the near uh, kinsman redeemer. He called him in. He called 10 elders, which was what was needed in order to make it official. 10 elders that could be witnesses to the transaction, if you will. But you know, integrity could also be seen in impartiality. I mean, Boaz called together these 10 witnessing judges to observe the, the transaction, and he wanted the negotiation to be fair, to be just, to be unbiased. <laughs> See, many times we want to work things to our advantage. We want to twist it, we want to manipulate it, we want to make it to where it works good for us. In this, we see Boaz being a man of integrity and, and he's, he's showing impartiality. He's saying, you have first right. You have the opportunity to do this if you want to do it. But no, this is what it all entails. But he was honest with him. He was being impartial with it. That He offered the, the kinsman the opportunity and the kinsman was willing, but Boaz proposed that he would also have to take Ruth. And the kinsman was not willing to assume both the responsibility of buying the land from Naomi and marrying Ruth. But you see, in this, Boaz was very objective. He was reasonable. See, we can really know the integrity of a person by the way they do their business, by the way they transact business, and by the way that they treat others around them. You know, we see people in the news all the time, you know, things come out. People come out and they say, he did such and such, he did such and such. We see a lack of integrity in our leaders. We recognize it, we can see it. What I'm saying is integrity is seeable. You can see that in someone else's life. And integrity is so important because people of integrity, they seek justice. They seek fairness with and for other people. They don't try to manipulate it to make it just what they want it to be that benefits them. Integrity can also be seen in gracefulness. I mean, from the moment that Boaz saw Ruth, a foreigner, an alien, from another country, he showed grace to her. Even though Ruth was from Moab, Boaz accepted her. Hey, don't go, don't go glean in anybody else's field. Come here and glean in my field. Every transaction, every encounter that we have between Boaz and Ruth, he treated her with grace. He gave her generous gifts. And in his kinsman redeemer role, Boaz was willing to sacrifice for Ruth. See, the integrity of a person may be seen in how much grace is extended to other people around them. I mean, some people claim to be godly people. But they live and they treat others by the letter of the law. Rather than extending grace. See, real godly integrity comes by treating others 
with grace. Boaz was a man of integrity. In the normal, ordinary events of the day, of life, he demonstrated this inward character. And whenever you observe Boaz in the book of Ruth, you always see integrity. Well, there's a big bowl of that there, a big bowl of integrity. Now, you know, moving along with the passage, the second large serving dish on the table this morning is marriage. This is uh, one of those things, you know, it's uh, obviously I can't unpack the entire ingredient list uh, to this course, but understand there's a lot more to this than I have opportunity to say today. In verse 7, follow with me if you will, in chapter 4, it says, Now this was the custom in former times in Israel concerning the redemption and the exchange of land to confirm any matter. A man removed his sandal and gave it to another. And this was the manner of attestation in Israel. But the closest relative said to Boaz, buy it for yourself. And he removed his sandal. Then Boaz said to the elders and all the people, you are witnesses today that I have bought from the uh, from the hand of Naomi all that belonged to Elimelech and all that belonged to Kilion and Mechlon. Moreover, I have acquired Ruth the Moabitess, the widow of Mechlon, to be my wife in order to raise up the name of the deceased on his inheritance, so that the name of the deceased will not be cut off from his brothers or from the court of his birthplace. You are witnesses today. And all the people who were in the court and the elders said, we are witnesses. May the Lord make the woman who is coming into your home like Rachel and Leah, both of whom built the house of Israel. And may you achieve wealth in Ephratah and become famous in Bethlehem. Moreover, may your house be like the house of Perez, whom Tamar bore to Judah through the offspring which the Lord will give you by this young woman. So Boaz took Ruth, and she became his wife, and he went into her, and the Lord enabled her to conceive, and she gave birth to a son. Then the woman, then the, excuse me, then the women said to Naomi, blessed is the Lord who has not left you without a redeemer today, and may his name become famous in Israel. May he also be to you a restorer of life and a sustainer of your old age for your daughter-in-law who loves you and is better to you than seven sons has given birth to him. I want you to understand that marriage is important. Marriage is very important. It should not be entered into lightly or flippantly. And some folks get into marriage without really knowing what it makes, it takes to make a marriage. See, our passage in the book of Ruth helps us with some of these factors and gives us some insights between what marriage is between Boaz and Ruth. I mean, at first I want to point out this, that personal commitment, personal commitment makes a marriage. Personal commitment. You know, this account of Boaz and Ruth, it, it shows us her willingness to be committed to him. 
She went to him as he was sleeping on the threshing floor. He'd been working, uh, he had been harvesting, he had been threshing. She went to him and asked him if he would be her kinsman redeemer. She had already committed herself to him. And he goes and he makes the commitment to her by going and, and redeeming her through the right channels, through the right processes. But you see, it's like commitment is what makes a marriage. We have to be committed to one another. See, I personally believe that we as believers need to build strong marriages that build strong families, that build strong communities, that build great nations. I happen to believe in marriage. I've been married for 35 years this year. It's important to me. It's important to God. It's, it should be important to us as the people of God. See, commitment. Commitment has to be mutual. It has to come from both sides in that. It has to be, it's not, it's not 50-50. By the way, you can't have more than 100% of anything. People say, oh, it's 1,000%. No, it's not. It's 100%. That's all you can have. But it's 100% and 100% working together. And if this commitment is greater than anything that we face, it will last. And that's why I say personal commitment makes a marriage. The commitment has to be there. It has to be stronger than anything that we face. But listen, there are no problems that are too big to solve. Just people that are too small to solve them. We give up too easy. We don't have any grit. We don't have what it takes there. You know, Ephesians 4.26 says, Be angry and yet do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger. <laughs> you know, Tracy and I have tried to practice that. Sometimes we've stayed up for three nights in a row. We really got to quit doing that. But we always worked it out. We always worked out our differences and our difficulties. You know, some people, they leave divorce out there as an option. You know, if problems arise or whatever. But couples that get divorced and those that don't have basically the same problems. The difference is not in the problems, but in the commitment of both him and her. They're not committed like they should be. See, some people might rationalize, well, I, I owe it to myself to be happy. There's a Greek word for that. Baloney. <laughs> Say that with me. Baloney. Now you know some Greek, okay? But when you were at the marriage altar, the, the fact is, is that you made a vow. You made a vow and you owe it to God. You owe it to your spouse. You owe it to your children. You owe it to yourself to keep that vow because personal commitment is what makes a marriage. See, there's also this public nature of that. Public covenants also make a marriage. The primary biblical picture of marriage is that of a covenant 
There's a lot of scriptural evidence that God regards marriage as a covenant. That God chose to use the language of marriage to describe his own covenant relationship with his people Israel. See, the elders and all of the people there that witness the, the marriage of Boaz and Ruth. They're there as witnesses. It's a public thing. It's not something that's hidden. It's something that's public. A, a covenant is public. You know, the, the Hebrew word for, for covenant has this, this, it comes from a root word that has the sense of this with it. It has the sense of cutting. You don't write a covenant. You might write a contract, but you cut a covenant. And what it goes back to, it goes back to when you, they, would, they would cut the animal of sacrifice and they would split the halves and then the, the parties would walk between those two halves. So you cut a covenant with somebody. You cut a covenant with God and it's that kind of thing. And I just want to pull the truck over and park for just a moment here. Understand that marriage is God's design. Marriage is God's intelligent design for one man and one woman as we read in the book of Genesis, the book of beginnings. One man and one woman. That's God's design for marriage. Whatever else is going on in our society is not marriage. It's not marriage. They're ripping off God's intellectual property. Because marriage is between a man and a woman, and the two become one flesh. Now, in Genesis 1, it says, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Verse, uh, chapter 1, verse 26, then God said, us, let us make man, humanity, in our image according to our likeness. And in Genesis 2.18, it says, Then the Lord said, It is not good for the man to be alone. I will make him a helper who is suitable, adapted, and complementary for him. They go together. They go together. See, the covenant of marriage is the single most important human bond that holds all of God's work on the planet together. It's no small wonder why the Lord is passionate about the sanctity of marriage, the holiness of the marriage, because it's so important, because it holds things together, the stability of the home, the building blocks of society. This covenant of marriage is based on the covenant promise that God has made with each of us. It is in the power of his promise to us as humanity that our personal covenant of marriage could even be kept against the forces that would destroy our homes and ruin our lives. God is the one holding the promise. It's not just Bridge. It's not just Tracy. But it's God who is holding our covenant together. Amen. See, public witness is a big part of covenant making. I mean, wedding, weddings, they constitute more than a social uh, ceremony, you know, performances and, and actors. They represent covenant making in front of other people because vows are not private matters. Instead, vows are public declarations of fidelity 
of loyalty, of faithfulness to each other. You remember Ruth's vow to Naomi? Where you go, I will go. Your people will be my people. Your God will be my God. Recognize, she made a tremendous commitment to Naomi, but she didn't marry Naomi. She married Boaz. Draw that distinction because that contrast could not be greater. I love my brothers in Christ. I love you so much. There isn't anything I wouldn't do for my brothers in Christ. But I will not marry a brother in Christ. My commitment level is high. But I married my wife. See, a covenant is made in public. And it's contracted before witnesses. And you think about this. There's a huge difference. (laughs) There's a huge difference between the the whispered pledges of a hormone-driven boy in the backseat of a car. And the solemn vows of a rational young man before God and witnesses in the ceremony of holy matrimony. There's a huge difference in that. Because it's a public thing. And you're making these vows in front of everybody. See, the public nature of the covenant means that marriage is a social institution that society should have an interest in preserving. And as an institution, marriage is regulated by the word of God. It's his design. It's his plan. See that the marriage covenant is not simply a private affair becomes very clear when we start talking about divorce. Divorce wrecks the lives of children. Divorce destroys peace of mind. It damages the effectiveness of employees. They can't get their mind off of it. They can't even focus on what they're doing. They're tore up by it. Because this union that was together is being torn apart. Divorce upsets friends and family. Marriage is the closest possible relationship between two depraved human beings. And so marriage is potentially a wonder of grace. Or it can become the scene of intense pain. Y'all know what I'm talking about. I'm saying the truth. I'm giving it to you straight. See, I would say that even... The wedding pictures. Oh, people spend a lot of money on wedding pictures. Even the wedding pictures serve as a memorial and a pictorial witness of that glorious, wonderful day when a man and a woman who were so in love with each other mysteriously became one flesh. I think that's huge. We've looked at this. We've seen the elements of marriage in Ruth and Boaz, the promise of the commitment to each other, the, the public um, covenant making. And I would also say mutual communion makes a marriage. Mutual communion. You know, that back and forth. Communion. 
J.A. Motyer, he says, marriage is not just a concession to our sinfulness. Marriage is a provision for our holiness. Or Cecil Myers, he says, successful marriage is always a triangle. There's a man, a woman, and there's God. The third element that I want to point out here is seen in the sexual union. That's right. I said sexual union. If we can't talk about it here, we certainly shouldn't be talking about it anywhere else. Because it's God's design. Verse 13 says, So Boaz took Ruth, and she became his wife, and he went into her, and the Lord enabled her to conceive, and she gave birth to a son. See, the sexual union is, is more than just bodily union. It means ultimate intimacy. And it symbolizes a mutual communion with each other. See, marriage involves a lifetime of intimacy. A lifetime of intimacy. And marriage means sharing all of life, not just the physical union. Sharing all of life, sharing your hopes, sharing your dreams, sharing your your joys, sharing your bills, sharing your food, your car, your truck, sharing your love with one another. I mean, when we're talking about intimacy, that's being fully integrated there, of loving your wife, loving your husband, and, and, and being intimate all your life long with them. That's, it's, it's huge. It's, it's wonderful. But see, we miss out, and we sell out short on the things of God that he wants for us. Well, her money's her money, my money's my money. You're missing out on what God wants for you. Two is better than one, trust me. There are so many things that Tracy brings to our marriage, I, I can't even count them. And never let the physical part of your marriage grow cold. Always keep the romance. Your spouse is someone special. Keep the joy. Keep the excitement in your relationship. You know, about intimacy, intimacy requires acceptance. It requires acceptance. I said earlier that Boaz accepted Ruth, even though she was an alien and a foreigner. He accepted her. Intimacy requires acceptance. See, when we give critical speech or negative speech, that communicates loud and clear that you are not accepted by your spouse. And it stifles intimacy. And everybody here knows what I'm talking about. Because there have been times when you didn't want to get close. There was times where it's like, you know what? I'll just sleep on the couch. You know what? Never mind. There are times where we have felt distance, and the reason is probably because of our critical spirit. Probably because we've been ugly, probably because of what we've said. And guys, sometimes we're like, I don't know, was it something I said? Probably was. Just saying. But that stifles intimacy. 
It stifles intimacy. And, and, and I want you to understand that positive speech breeds trust. And people who trust each other know they have an emotional uh, safe place. They trust each other. What I'm trying to say, and I'm almost done, is that marriages may be made in heaven. But we're responsible for the upkeep. We're responsible to do the maintenance work. You know, Josh McDowell, he talks about three kinds of love. He says, there's I love you if. There's also I love you because. And there's also I love you in spite of. The first two are conditional. I love you if you provide well. I love you because, oh, you're so smart. You're, you're so beautiful. Examples of contract love. But the third one is an example of covenant love. I love you in spite of your weaknesses. I love you in spite of your faults. I love you in spite of the fact that you don't always love me. Wow. Wow. Most of the time, we give so that we can get. I love you in spite of the fact that you don't always love me. See, that's the only kind of love that will last a lifetime. That's the kind of love that we receive from Jesus Christ on the cross. That I love you in spite of the fact that you don't always love me. See, conditional love will never make it. Because what if we don't provide well? What if one day he can't think straight? What if one day, uh, you know, will you still love him or her then? Will you stand by his or her side? But understand this, and this is, if you didn't hear anything else I said today, listen to this. Because God's love is covenant love. It doesn't depend on us. God's love doesn't depend on us. And likewise, the covenant love that holds a marriage together is love that doesn't depend on the other person. Can you say that? That you've been that kind of, that you've given that kind of love that doesn't depend on the other person? Then I'm going to continue to love you no matter what. You know, as we finish this message... And wrap up the book of Ruth. I want to read this next passage. But let me say this. What makes a marriage? Two personal commitments. Two personal commitments. A public covenant. And a continuing communion with intimacy. That makes a marriage. Verse 16 and following says this short passage here. Then Naomi took the child and laid him in her lap and, he, and became his nurse. The neighbor women uh, gave him a name saying, A son has been born to Naomi. So they named him Obed. He is the father of Jesse, the father of David. 
Now these are the generations of Perez. To Perez was born Hezron. To Hezron was born Ram. To Ram, uh, Aminadab. And to Aminadab was born Nashon. And Nashon, Salmon. And to Salmon was born Boaz. And to Boaz, Obed. And to Obed was born Jesse. And to Jesse, David. So we talk about tragedy and marriage. Excuse me, tragedy and God's sovereignty. Ruth and Naomi had experienced so much tragedy. Their life had been shaken. And when we experience tragedy, we usually don't see the benefits in sight. But every single element seems to be a negative when we're looking at it. So what are the blessings of tragedy? What what are some things that we can pull out of that? Well, tragedies help us to know and appreciate our blessings. We don't know what the joy of a blessing is until we know the hardship. Tragedies help us to put our faith into words. Tragedies help us to see God as our provider. And tragedies force us to look beyond ourselves, maybe even beyond our own lives. In Romans 8.28 says, For we know that, all, that God causes all things to work together for good to those who love God and are called according to his purpose. So I ask the question, where do you find yourself today? Where do you find yourself this morning? Needing some integrity in your life? It's pretty simple. Commit it to God and ask him to help you and to heal you. Or maybe it's too late for you. Your marriage is already broken. I'm not trying to heap sorrow and pain upon you. I mean, you can't unscramble eggs, right? But take the broken pieces and give them to God. He can and will forgive you and restore you. I am so glad that our God is still in the people redeeming business. I may be just simply telling some of the couples that are married, find a way to work your marriage out in the grace that God gives. Find a way. Now I'm going to pray in just a moment, and I'm going to ask our, our praise team to come back up and lead us in a, another song or two. But you know, in all of life, God initiates and we respond. And I don't know what you're personally going through right now. I don't know about your relationship with the Lord. I don't know about your relationship uh, with, with Christ, what that means, where, where you're at in that. If you're um, just curious about it, if you're, if you're looking at it, if, you're, um, if he's your king, I don't know where you're at in that. But you do. Every one of us knows where we're at in relation to Jesus Christ. And all I can do is encourage you to surrender and to to let him have his perfect work in your life. Maybe you're here and you say, you know what, Brother Ridge, my marriage isn't what it should be. Maybe I am the man and I haven't been the man and I don't have integrity and I'm the problem. Well, praise God, there's, there's time for a new beginning. He redeems situations and he works them out for good to those who love him and are called according to his purpose. But whatever you're dealing with, 
know that God cares and that he loves you. And his kind of love doesn't depend on you. He's the one holding the relationship. And so today, you may just say, you know what? I've made a mess of it. It's broken. I can't fix it. Here. Take it. Use it. Do what you can with it. But God will take that. And he will redeem that. He will make something beautiful of your life. If you will allow him to. I know. He's done that in my life. And he's done it in many of yours. Let's pray together. Loving Father, I thank you for this time. And I thank you for the grace that we receive every single day. Father, wave upon wave of your grace comes. And it just keeps coming. And before we've used it up, there's more. And before we used it up, there's more. It's just an abundance of grace. So Father, I pray that you would help us to just let go and let you do the work that you want to do in our lives. Just to surrender to you and say, Lord, I've tried to do it myself for so long. It's so painful. It's so hard. But God, I just want you to take over to be my Lord, to be my Savior, to be my King, and just to ask Him to come in and to do that. Father, I pray that you would help us as, as men and women who say that we love you, to give you the, the absolute control of the reins in our lives. Father, you have been so faithful to us, You've given us everything. So I pray, Father, in our relationship with you that we would be faithful to you. That we would come before you and just lay it at your feet and say, Father, I've made a mess of it. Can you fix it? And God, that you would restore. That you would restore and redeem the, the years that the enemy stole. Father, that you would do something so great and so magnificent in our lives that, that we couldn't help but tell others about the grace that we've received from you. Father, that we would give testimony of your wonderful grace and your faithfulness in each of our lives. Truly, God, you are worthy to be praised. We love you and we praise you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.